Welcome to the Abbot Loop Community Church Podcast. Enjoy this message from Mark Drake. Would you just, just kind of draw back into yourself just for a moment? To keep your lovely face ever before my eyes. This is my prayer. Make it my strong desire till in my secret heart No other loves compete. No rival thrones survive. And I serve only you. Linda and I renew our minds in our conversations with each other every day, throughout the day. If we're separated and the Lord stirs up something, we call each other. Because even though we have been teaching this literally every day for uh, going on 23 years now, the enemy works on us with fear about the future and shame about ways that we have not yet measured up, just like you. And uh, we've learned, learned quickly that we've been given a new heart, we've been given his spirit, but we have the same old mind. And so we're in the process, as the scripture says, of renewing our minds because we act the way we, 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 we act the way we act because we think the way we think. And the more we renew our minds... I, I, contrary to one of the things that I touched on in the foundry class last week, I do believe in memorizing scripture. I just believe in memorizing it in context and uh, seeing it and believing it in context. But Linda and I have memorized dozens and dozens of verses that talk about the power of new covenant grace living inside of us and growing and flowing through us to the world around us. We have to renew our minds all the time, and I will guarantee that we talk about it with other people far more than you do. This is our job. But we have to feed on it ourselves. If we do not feed regularly our bodies, oh, man, what a bad example right after Thanksgiving. Dear Jesus. But avoid the sin of gluttony, except on designated federal holidays, which I'm sure the Lord understands. But if we don't feed our bodies well, we grow weak. If we don't feed our spiritual mind on the right words of God and view them correctly, we, we grow weak. It's just, it, it, it's not complicated. And by the way, one of the greatest compliments and one of the greatest accusations that I get over the years is, wow, thank you so much. You make this so simple. And then from some leaders in our pastor's conferences, this just can't be true. It's too simple. 
Well, it's simple because that's what we are, whether we want to admit it or not. So, <laughs> yeah, and thank God, right? Thank God he understands we are, oh, I'm, I'm going to say this. I, no, you're, you're saying don't say it. You're right. Time out. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My daughter, our youngest daughter, Amanda, was 12 when we gave up our home and reduced our lives down to suitcases and started traveling. Now she's, what, 36 and going to have her third child uh, due on Christmas. And uh, she used to, because she heard me every night, she used to love to sit on the front row, and she ended up with a thick notebook of all of my word flubs. And this was one of her favorite. I was talking about the fact that God knows us. He knows us inside out and nothing about us surprises him. He knows that we were created and as David says, we are but dust. And Amanda sent out on Facebook, my dad said, but dust in church today. Oh, Jesus. Now, I may, I may have to fix my own lunch now because Linda did not want me to say that. Um, yeah, one more shot to get books on big sale. $5 for our New Covenant uh, leadership uh, role of women in leadership because this is such a, a difficult thing for some people. And so we want you to have this book. We want you to read it. We want you to get some for other people. It will, in most cases, if they're willing to think and listen, it will clear up so much confusion about the, the, the role of women. Um, it is not, as we've been taught, stay home, fix dinner, have babies, and preferably be barefoot in the summer. Um, that is not. On the contrary, following Jesus' example, Peter, Paul, James, and John they did everything they could to liberate women to stand shoulder to shoulder with men and lead in whatever gifting and capacity God has given them. And uh, once you start reading Scripture in context, instead of picking and choosing, it, it makes a huge, huge difference in our understanding. And then also, everything that I've taught on Sunday since I've been here, including today, is from the book God's Brilliant Plan, We've knocked it down to 10 bucks because we want you to have it. And again, it's a way to feed on, uh, on, on uh, things that will help renew your mind with the understanding that the best thing you can do is rest in the arms of Jesus and uh, confess that you can't do it, but you believe he can. And that's actually how I want to close today, although for you Foundry students, I get one more good shot at you Tuesday night. Before we leave on Wednesday, we've been having a great, great time. Um, and good news for you, we're videoing all of the sessions for the entire year. And somewhere down the road, they will be available uh, as a package that you can can participate in also. Today, I want to end uh, this series on um, the understanding the mystery and the miracle of New Covenant grace. Uh, we call it a mystery because it is not humanly understandable uh, that the almighty, omnipotent, omniscient God would somehow live inside of fragile, frail human beings, but that's exactly what he does. And it's a miracle because when you put your faith in him, the changing transformation miracle begins inside. 
Have you ever heard people say or see a bumper sticker that says, Christians are not perfect, they're just forgiven? You ever seen that? I want to tell you that that is, though I'm sure sincere, it is a terrible understanding of what born-again believers really are. Are we perfect? Not by a long shot, and we won't be until we finally see him face to face and we'll be changed fully into his image. But are we just forgiven? No, no, no. We just have the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead working a miracle inside of us 24 hours a day. And the more we believe it and confess it in our lives, the more we begin to see and I'm going to deliberately use this word, effortless change. The effort is draw near to him and keep renewing your mind. The change he does, you get to enjoy it. And that is the miracle of the new covenant. And anything less than that that depends on more of you working hard and promising to do better is old covenant teaching, which the New Testament says has now passed away. It did its job, and now it passed away. And for us to realize that and to live in it brings excitement even in our failures Because we can admit it and then get excited about how God is going to change us. And I got to tell you, there's no single human being on the face of the earth that appreciates what the Lord has done in my life over the past 23 years than that lady right over there who's had to put up with me for twice that long now, over that 49 years. And I've given her reasons to choose somebody else. Hello? Say, well, She'd never do that. She's a godly woman. Well, I'm telling you, there are things in the scripture that tell us that once we reach a certain place, we may need to choose somebody else. That is in the Bible, folks. It is. Now, she has decided I'm it. Dear Lord, pray for her. Today, I want to close with this statement or question. What makes new covenant grace work? We've talked about what it isn't. It's not mercy, it's not forgiveness. Those things are very important, but that's not new covenant grace. What it is, is the transforming power of Jesus living in us by his spirit, changing us from the inside out as we simply rest and cooperate with him. But what makes it work in our lives? Well, the Bible is is really very, very clear. In the same way as you would go to a doctor, he would uh, diagnose what's wrong with you, and then he would be very clear in in prescribing a medication. You have a serious infection, he would be or she would be very clear in prescribing antibiotics. You would then take those antibiotics according to their uh, description, prescription, and, uh, and, and you would get well, not by your own effort, but by something that the medicine can do inside of you that you cannot possibly do for yourself. And so when we talk about what makes New Covenant grace work, I want to give you two words. And throughout the New Testament, we could look on and on and on, but they've only given me two hours to speak on this last Sunday, so I've got to hurry. Mariah almost slipped off her seat right then. Uh, Oh, God, please, no. no. Those two words are humility and faith. Humility and faith. Now, those words are 
oftentimes just words that we kind of put out there and, and the meaning is sort of nebulous and we're not quite sure what it means, but we know they're biblical words, so we feel okay about them. But, but we have to understand what they meant when they used humble or humility and faith or believe. Now, in the scripture, there are three places, Old Testament and New Testament, that say virtually the exact same thing. One is Proverbs 3, 34. This, the he here is God in the context. But he mocks proud mockers, but he shows favor to the humble and oppressed. Now look in, or we're going to show you here, 1 Peter chapter 5 uh, and verse 5. In the same way, that's a, that's a 5, by the way. That first word is not sin. That first word is in. In the same way, you who are younger should submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourself with humility one toward another because. Now, you see the quotation marks. This is a direct quotation by Peter from what we just read in Proverbs. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor, and the word there is actually charis. It is grace to the what? To the humble. And then one more time in James chapter 4 and verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says. Now, where is he quoting from? Proverbs chapter 3. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk about why God opposes the proud. But first, we need to get a clear definition of what they meant when they use the word humble or humility. Humility or being humble is not when you are given the most valuable player award for the game and when they hand it to you say, oh, no, 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 it was a team effort. No, 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 it was a team effort. No, no, it was a... That's not humility. In fact, that's a very sharp little way of making yourself even greater in other people's eyes which is generally called pride. Ouch. That's not humility. Humility is literally understood in the Scripture to mean unpretentious. So let me put it in that sentence. God must oppose the proud, but he gives his grace, his unearned transforming power to people who do not pretend to be better than they are. We find this all the way through the Scripture. Now, we can know for certain that the apostles freely, and I would even say, based on the context of what you can read here, um, rather easily would admit that they were known nowhere near Christ's absolute perfection in this life. And that that was never the issue for the first, church, first century church. It was, the issue was never, now you gotta become exactly and completely like Jesus or God ain't gonna be happy. That's, that was never the issue for the first century believers. Listen to these words in, uh, uh, 1 John 1. 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So what's the answer according to that scripture? Admit the truth. Admit the truth. I'm not nearly what I should be. When that happened, when I did that, God, I want you to know that was me. That was not anybody else's fault. Now, let me give you the, 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 the bad example. Adam, what did you do? It was the woman who you gave me. Yeah, so then he had to go through the humiliation of seeing one of his sons murder the other. Because the example that he set was, I'm not to blame. Somebody else is to blame. Favorite target? My wife. If she just loved me and respected me more, then I would love her more like Jesus loves her. You need to read the Bible again. (laughs) There's no if in there. If you take up the role of a husband, you love your wife as Jesus loves. So, well, I can't do that perfectly now. God knows that. But you need to know that. And the admission of when we miss it is the thing that God views as humility. Because I admit, by the way, when the scripture in the New Testament uses the word confess, I know there's some of what we would call, quote, grace teachers who say, well, you know, once you've received and confessed Christ as Lord, then you don't, all your sins are taken care of, which that part is true, then you don't ever have to mention your sins again when you commit them. Well, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't believe that at all. In fact, I believe just the opposite, that God's transforming grace works in me only when I am willing to take responsibility, not blame anybody else. Now, let me tell you why we can do that. If our minds are being renewed on the fact that he knew us before we were ever born and he already sees us at the end fully made into the image of Jesus, if we know that, If we know that he loved us when we were his enemies and how much more now that we are his sons and daughters, if we know that we have a high priest who fully understands our weaknesses, then we can freely admit our weakness when it shows up and we can draw near to him. If we think that he's angry, which he is not, if we think that he is a punisher right now, which he is not, but if we think those things, when we mess up, we will draw back from him and blame somebody else as if he doesn't know the truth. So humility is learning to not pretend to be better than we are. We're talking about honesty, transparency, not hiding, not pretending. James 5 says, confess your sins to each other and then pray for each other that you'll be healed. Okay, confession, you know what that is? It's just, you know, if if you get arrested for breaking into a store and you did it and you confess, here's what you're saying. I agree with you. I was wrong. I did it. I'm the one. Okay, See, you know, nobody held a gun to my head and said, break into that store. I did it. That's what confession is. Confession is not coming to church and begging and pleading for God to love me. Now, religious teaching will lead you to think that. 
Aren't you ashamed of what you did? Careful now. Careful now. There is a biblical godly sorrow, but that ain't shame. Shame drives us back. But oh, confidence with God draws us near. Since Jesus took all of our shame, fear, sin, condemnation, we need to live in the belief that he has taken that. Now, I know when I, I mean, we do this for large groups of pastors around the world. And invariably, when we come to the question and answer period, right at the very beginning, we almost count on it. Somebody's going to say, yeah, but the way you're talking is going to make people think they just don't have to obey God in anything. I said, well, why would you think that based on what I just said? And this is normally the answer. Because if people are not afraid of God, they won't obey. And then I try to lovingly, with a smile, say, how'd that work out for Israel? They were terrified of him, wouldn't even come to the mountain because they were scared to death. Originally, God wanted them all to come up on the mountain, but they were terrified. How well did they obey? Hebrews says these all died in the wilderness, most of them. Because out of their terror, they couldn't obey. But see, fear only motivates for a moment as long as there is an immediate punishment. Come on, parents, you know when you say, I'm telling you for the last time, and your child knows that this is actually the 39th time, they're not afraid because there's been no punishment. So when when we learn how much he loves us, how his love is not affected by the things that we think it might be, then we can draw near to him quickly when we know we've really messed up. We can confess and admit it. Yes, it was me not depending on you. It was me giving in to the carnal desire that still works somewhere in my part of my mind that's not been renewed. So I want to take responsibility. I want to confess that. God's response is to pour out more of his grace into our lives so that we will experience change by his sanctifying his work and not our own best effort. Listen to, 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 to Philippians 3. That I, may Christ, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And then he says this. This is Paul now. Not that I have already obtained all of what I'm teaching you or have already been made perfect. It, isn't that pretty clear? Uh, Look, I've not reached all the stuff I'm teaching. I'm teaching way beyond what I've been currently experiencing in my own life. But still true. I'm just in a journey just like you. And it's not that I've already become perfect. Nobody has in this life. In fact, if you say you are, John says, you lie. So there's an imperfection right there. Okay, well, then that's my only one. Oh, I doubt that. Just the fact that you would think that about yourself shows a real problem. 
But here's what I do. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to yet have taken fully hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, because he believed Jesus took care of that, and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me upward in Christ Jesus. His imperfections did not stop the work of God drawing him into his final place of being made forever like Jesus once we see him. And John made it very clear. We do not understand what we shall be. It's not within our little brains to be able to comprehend what a a resurrected immortal body that looks like me, but is what, is what my body should have become if there had never been a fall, if there were never sin. You say, well, how old will you be? You'll be the perfect age. And I'm getting my hair back. <laughs> but I can't understand that. I can't, I can't as, as Hank Hanegraaff likes to say, I cannot comprehend that, but I can apprehend it. I can believe it enough to keep moving towards it. Now, there's an interesting thing that happened with Saul and David. Saul, the first king over Israel. And uh, this is what Samuel, of course, if you know the story, you know that within two years after Saul became king, he, he grossly disobeyed the Lord, put himself in the place of the priest, offered sacrifice, which he had no right to do, and he knew it, but he was afraid, and he said, well, the people were leaving me, and so I didn't want them to leave me, so I offered sacrifice, and so they'd all have to come back and worship the Lord and not leave me. Very selfish reason, and he, was, he, he already started down a terrible road. But listen to these words the next time that he majorly disobeyed God's clear command. Samuel says to him, you were once small in your own eyes, and that's when God made you king over his people. You want to know what humility is? Think about that. Small in my own eyes. Small. Now, that that doesn't run me down. That exalts what Jesus is doing in me and through me. That doesn't make me worthless. The king of the universe died to purchase me. And I still can't figure out how he didn't get the bad end of the deal. But I'm understanding more and more it's because of his incalculable love that he wants us so badly he will not stop drawing, speaking, If you've got grown children who seem to have walked away from actively following Jesus, but you know that they have had an encounter of being born again earlier in their life, the Holy Spirit is not going to stop. We'll give you the testimonies from our own family. It was 39, almost 40 years old before our oldest daughter had a dramatic life-changing encounter and discovered what real grace is. And for the past 10 years, she's been helping to lead dozens and dozens of other people into that while she's working her full-time job. But it took a long time. But God never stopped. 
He never stopped. Well, that's a story for another day. But the last time that Saul disobeys, Samuel comes to him to say, the kingdom has been torn out of your hands. God has torn it away, and he's given it to another who has a better heart than you do. And this is what Saul said. I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me that they may see me as I worship the Lord. You see what's going on here? It's not really my fault. And the important thing is that nobody sees me as a failure. Well, then, brother, you're stuck. Because not until we just freely admit, yeah, I did that. I did. It's not anybody else's fault. I did that. But see, when we are constantly being renewed in the reality of how much he loves us and what he is intending to do and promises that he will finish his work inside of us, then we can come to him freely. And that's when the transformation of grace begins to work. Well, in this statement, David, by the way, was a different kind of a man. When Nathan came to him and said, you are the one who has done this by your sin with Bathsheba and her husband. David's first words were, I am the man. Uh, it, it's not my wife's fault. It's my fault. I'm the guy. I'm the, I'm, I'm the guilty one here. And I'm freely confessing. I am agreeing. It is me. It is my fault. And David heard the words from the prophet, from the Lord, you have been forgiven. There will be some sowing and reaping because there's going to be some natural results. But you have been forgiven. Why? Because he immediately, when confronted with his own sin, humbled himself. It's me. It's not anybody else's fault. It's me. Humility. Unpretension. Not pretending that I'm better than I am. Now, what do the proud say in that situation? Well, for me, the proud was, or my pride said, Lord, I know I messed up, but give me one more chance. I will be serious, and this time I'm really going to try harder to make myself like you. That's what the proud will say. Now, unless, unless we can hear what the word says, we won't think that's pride. We'll think that's a really good altar call. I mean, I used to think if I can get people to feel miserable about where they're not like Jesus and then in the service with and the altars are open, people with good Christians who were sincere and loved Jesus and now they're terrified. So they rush to the altar and I go home and say, boy, I did not do a good job. And then my wife would say, I think you're making them more sad than happy. Really? (laughs) Well, if they get right with God, hallelujah. Humility. Knowing how much he loves me empowers me to simply tell the truth. And and I've had to do that. I had to do it yesterday, in fact. I got an email from a man who now is is my age. And uh, he was a part of our ministry when I was 21. And now I'm 70, so a long time ago. He wrote me a letter, and he said, when I left the training school that you ran then, of course, at the time he was 20, 
you said, don't leave because you are too weak to make it on your own. Now, I probably shouldn't have said that. There were reasons why I did, but that would not be something that I would say today under any circumstances. I really wouldn't. But he now writes me 45, 46, 7 years later and says, you know, that has bothered me all these years. Have you ever repented for that? (laughs) And I wrote him back, and I had an opportunity to say that was my fault. That was my fault. And I am heartbroken that you waited 45 years to contact me. I'm a fairly public person. You can find me real easy. But I just want you to know that was my fault. Well, I had a chance to do that. I felt better. He wrote me back and said, thank you so much. I feel free. Good. I'm glad. But that comes from humility. Now, look, it, you know, it, it, standing up here talking to you about humility is like, is like the guy who was awarded the, the ribbon for being the most humble person in the church. And then they had to take the ribbon away from him because he wore it. So I want you to understand that this is a lifelong process. Now, the second aspect of this that I need to get to in a hurry is faith. Now, here's what I mean by that. Ephesians 2, and we're familiar with this passage, but I want you to focus on the specific words that the Apostle Paul uses. Uh, Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. So grace has come and made us alive when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That took power, not just mercy, but power. But that came, that comes to us when we believe God tells the truth about Jesus. The next line is, it is not from ourselves. This transforming grace is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God. Now here's why. So that no one can boast. So that as grace works to change us, we can't boast that we somehow did it. That will nullify the work of grace because that's pride. Taking credit for something I cannot possibly do, but God does, taking credit for that is pride. And God's not going to work in that situation until we wise up. For we are his workmanship. The workmanship does not make itself. The workman makes the workmanship. We're the workmanship. Now, there is something. So faith. When we talk about this, we humble ourselves. Humbling ourselves is not enough. We must humble ourselves by admitting, especially when our weakness shows up, I was wrong. That's me. That's not anybody else to blame. That's me operating in my own best interest rather than cooperating with you and your spirit inside of me. That's good, but that's not enough. The Bible says that grace actually gets turned on in our lives when we believe it will do what the Bible says it will do. This is not just automatic. Grace doesn't work just automatic. But transforming grace works in our life as we renew our mind on the verses that teach us. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, What I have become, I have become by the work of God's grace in me. He took no credit for the growth in his own life. 
but he was always referring to it's the grace of God. In other places of the Corinthians, he writes and he says, this all happened so we would not rely upon ourselves. For our adequacy does not come from us. Our adequacy is from God. Our ability to endure the suffering that we endure doesn't come from us because we're wonderful men and women. It comes from God working in and through us. Therefore, now, there is something that has gone around uh, for many, many years in preaching, teaching. And, of course, now it floats around on the Internet. And at first it may seem to make perfect sense. But here's the statement. Do we have it? When God looks at you? I don't know if we have that or not. Yeah, here we go. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He only sees Jesus. Now, here's the dilemma. So many things that we say have unintended consequences. If we'll think just a little bit and use a little logic and kind of run the possibilities out, we'll see some of those unintended consequences. Now, here's what's wrong with this statement. First of all, it's just flat out not true. But, you know, other than that, here's what's wrong. Here's what's wrong with this statement. The unintended consequence is that people who are battling fear, shame, or condemnation will look at that and say, oh yeah, that must be because if God the Father actually saw me the way I'm struggling right now, he wouldn't like me at all. So Jesus hides me behind him. Absolutely not true. Let me read for you very quickly. Hebrews chapter 4, i got to wrap this up here fast. <laughs> Help me, Jesus. Stop the clock in Jesus' name. We're in a penalty overtime. All right. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit, the joints and marrow. Judges the thoughts and attitudes. That's how well God knows you. The thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him uh, to whom we must give an account. You see what that says? Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. Jesus is not hiding you behind him so that God won't see you're not perfect. God is not surprised. When, when, when God walked into the garden after Adam and Eve sinned and Adam said, we heard you coming, we knew we were naked, and we were afraid and ashamed. Here's a question. How long had they been naked? The whole time. God did not suddenly say, you were naked? God knows and see, he sees everything. You say, oh, that really scares me. Don't be scared at all. Be delighted that God knows absolutely everything about you. And he says, you are so valuable to me. My son will give his life. So that I can have you. I want you. Yeah, but God, you don't know the kind of a mess I am. Oh, I know it better than you do. And I want you. I want you in my family. And when we say these things, you know, God doesn't see you. It makes people feel like I can't be honest. I can't tell the truth about my struggles. Listen, we all struggle. It's it's the way of life in a fallen world. It won't always be like this. In fact, we'll look back and say, that was just the blink of an eye. Seems longer right now, doesn't it? I mean, really. But in truth, it's not. 
So then we have to do our part. We have to humble ourselves. We choose to do that. And we choose to put our faith in his promise to transform us. And I want to end with this. Here's our part. We humble ourselves by regularly admitting our sin and acknowledging we cannot make ourselves holy by our own effort. We draw near to God by interacting with his spirit in prayer and worship. When your weakness shows up and embarrasses you, draw near to the throne of grace. He invites you to come boldly with confidence because you've messed up. He invites you. Regularly renew our minds with the word to know what he wants to produce in us. Put our faith in him and his spirit to change us every day, day by day, little by little, changing us into his image as we admit to it. I want you to stand up with me if you would. And as we stand up together today, now if that's difficult for you, just stay seated. That's fine. It's not a problem. But, but I, I want us just to, just to take a minute and whatever word you want to choose to just freely admit areas of your life that you know are not perfected. You know there's still battles for you. You don't have to say them out loud. In fact, really, God already knows them, but you're admitting them so that you are willing to humble yourself and take responsibility. If you felt that your anger is because your spouse regularly does things that you just know are wrong, you're blaming somebody else. There's a better way to respond to that. There's a Christ way to respond to that. A fruit of the Spirit that would help you respond correctly. So, fathers, we stand before you. We want to say, Lord, that we want you to teach us how to quickly, quickly, quickly take responsibility for when we make carnal choices, when we act in carnal reactions. We, we want to quickly admit to you that that's us, that no one else is to blame, but, but it's us, it's me. And I acknowledge that. But I'm acknowledging that to you because you say you are the great physician. And if I don't tell you my symptoms, then the lack of humility will keep me from getting your miraculous help. But as the great physician, if I will just freely confess my symptoms of weakness, I believe that you can change me. One of the best prayers we can pray, church, is... Father, I know I cannot ultimately change myself, but I do believe that you can change me. I do believe that. Now, a verse we've gone back back to repeatedly during these last four or five weeks. It's been Philippians 1, 6. For I'm confident of this one thing, that he who began this good work in you, he will complete it to the day of Christ's appearing. I want you to start saying that just over in your mind. Say it out loud if you want. I'm confident of this one thing. That he who began this good work, he who began this good work in me, he will finish it to the day of Christ Jesus. He will 
finish it. He will finish it. He will finish it. He started it. You put your confidence in it. He's going to finish it. Now, Lord Jesus, as we stand here, I ask you, by the Spirit that's living in each of us, if we are believers, that by the Spirit living in us right now, that you would begin to wash from our minds stupid thoughts like, yeah, but it's the 34th time I've done this. I have no hope that I could ever stop. Well, good, because you can't, but he can if I admit it and don't blame anybody else. Father, we're standing here right now. Now, in a minute, I'm going to turn it back to to, um, to one of our leaders. But as I do and as you sit down, I really hope that you will go home this afternoon with a clear understanding that unless I keep renewing my mind on these biblical truths. He who began the skirt committee, he will finish it. Unless I keep renewing my mind, we will fall prey to the accuser who wants to keep dragging us back in. Our responsibility is to keep renewing our mind. The Spirit's responsibility is to keep transforming us from the inside out. To keep your Lovely face ever before my eyes. This is my prayer. Make it my strong desire that in my secret heart no other loves compete. No rival thrones survive, and I serve only you. It has been our tremendous privilege to be here for the past five weeks. This is, this is the spiritual home that we have, and we are very glad to be back. You may be seated. And thank you for enduring me. <laughs>